Evergreen Sermons Online and Pastor Michael Gabbard's Wednesday night series, First Corinthians Church for Broken People. This message from February 26, 2020 is entitled Resurrection Bodies, citing First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58. I, uh, I want us to, to pick up where he left off. He finished with verse 34. That's it. I, I don't, uh, I don't really, uh, I don't really regret missing the whole question about being baptized for the dead, but I do hate that, that, that I don't get to do verse 34. So I'm going to drop back and we're just going to pick that up a little bit. Uh, verse 34, the end of the first real, the first half of this chapter really, uh, and Paul says, come to your senses and stop sinning. I love that because what you have here, you don't have to use much sanctified imagination to see. You remember, we've started this. We're now uh, 20 lessons into this into this book. And every chapter, I mean, he started with rivalries and factions and, and divisive groups in, in, the, in the first chapter. And every chapter is just the next problem. I'm going to deal with this problem, and then here's the next problem. I'm going to deal with this problem, and here's the next problem. And we've just done that for chapter after chapter after chapter. This is hands down the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament era. And by the time we get to chapter 15, Paul's just frazzled. He's like, listen, just come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God, and I say this to your shame. There's no reason for you to have the gospel that's been handed to you, the content, the essential nature of that gospel in the first few verses of chapter 15. We did that a couple of weeks ago. There's no reason for you to have such messed up theology. The Holy Spirit is your teacher. You've had good instruction. And yet there are people in the church that don't know God, that don't understand the right doctrine. This is to your shame. Uh, that is a very 21st century frustration. The idea that, that the church is just a place where we go and we fellowship with a few friends, and we sort of check off our religious obligations. How is it possible? I've always wondered about this. How is it possible to have perfect Sunday school attendance for 40 years and not know any significant, not have any significant understanding of the Word of God? What is the theme of the book of Galatians? I don't know. Can you name the 12 minor prophets? Uh, no. Can you name any of the Ten Commandments? I mean, it, it stuns me. Now, I've figured out over the years some of the reasons why. Um, I had a conversation recently with somebody that visited our church for the first time. And this was a hugely awkward conversation that I'm going to share with you. Awkward on my part. But she said, um, she said, thank you for the sermon. She said, I took a lot of notes. And I said, oh, good. I'm glad. I didn't think anything about that because it's not that uncommon at Evergreen for people to take notes. That's kind of the culture of what we have here. But she said, um, I used to take notes a lot, but we got a new pastor about two years ago in our church 
And I haven't taken any notes in the last two years because he never says anything that I need to write down. And I said, well, thank you for coming. I mean, I didn't want to, I didn't want to chase that rabbit, but, but it breaks my heart because that's, that's the reality. Um, it's hard to, to get upset with Sunday school teachers not really implanting the word in the people in their class when that's not being modeled from the pulpit. Paul says, here's a church. You had every break. You've had, you've had what you need. There's no reason for you to have this many theological misunderstandings. And it's not just that they don't understand. That's why he says, come to your senses and stop sinning. Sin is incompatible with Christian growth. Nothing will short-circuit the process of maturing as a disciple like sin that is left untended to. Come to your senses and stop it. For some people are ignorant about God, and I say this to your shame. Now, I want to drop back and pick up verse 34 because now we're going to kind of come to verse 35, and he, and he, and he comes back around. He's still on the topic of, of the resurrection, but he kind of got sidetracked with this whole baptism issue, and, and he's got some frustration. The frustration continues to kind of bubble up because we're going to see it in the next couple of verses, but he's going to, he's going to come back to a couple of questions that he's either anticipating as an objection or more likely they're questions that have already been asked within the congregation. Now you remember, we, we understand that we're, it's like listening to one half of a telephone call. I mean, everything that we're trying to figure out in this book, we have Paul's side of the conversation. We don't know exactly what it is that the Corinthians had sent to him. We don't know exactly what they'd ask. But here's a couple of questions that he's going to pose as the next issue related to the resurrection that he wants to deal with. And I suspect these are questions that somebody in the church was asking. And I'll, and I'll tell you, I think, where they come from. Verse 35, he says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Foolish one, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, we'll pick up there because he's going to take them through uh, the, the rest of this conversation about the resurrection, specifically in these closing verses, specifically related to the topic of resurrection bodies. This is a very informative passage. It doesn't answer all of our curious questions about what we'll be like in eternity, but, but there's some great information here by, that, that Paul was given by special revelation that he gives to us. But he starts by stating these two questions. How are the dead raised and what kind of body will they have when they come? Uh, the speculation is that the, the, the Corinthians were uh, tremendously influenced in their pagan backgrounds by Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy um, was dualistic. That is the idea that man is a spiritual being trapped in a physical shell. Um, and so the body was always um, uh, sort of minimized in its importance. Uh, really, the Christ, Christianity is the first significant worldview that began to bury their dead instead of burn them 
because there was a veneration of the body. Because we understood that, that we are both body and spirit, and, and both of those aspects of who we are have, have real significance, that, that, that we're not just spiritual beings trapped in this sort of evil material case. Uh, but within the Christian tradition was this idea of Gnosticism, which was influenced by Greek philosophy. And the Gnostics typically taught that uh, that the spirit is good and that the flesh, the material, is bad, is evil. And so out of that Greek philosophical background that the Corinthian believers probably uh, had, and like so much else, they've dragged the baggage of their of their pagan background into their Christianity. Uh, that's why, like, like the whole baptism subject from last week, there are things that Paul deals with in Corinth that he doesn't deal with with any other church in the New Testament. Corinth had some real original problems because their congregation had such a, a, a powerful pagan background that had infiltrated their, their Christian theology. Well, they're asking this question about how the dead are raised because we've already, he's already started this subject about resurrection because clearly there's some people who aren't quite sure about this whole topic of resurrection. Well, he's already said if there's no resurrection, then there's no Christianity. I mean, without the resurrection, we're to be pitied most among all people because we're living a life that, that has no end game. But now they're asking about what kind of body would that look like? What, what does a resurrection body look like? Because in their minds, since the material is evil, what they were picturing probably was this resurrection as a coming back to life, the spirit sort of being made alive. But in their minds, this, this flesh, this stuff, they're picturing really a horrible scenario, which is extended life for my spirit, but forever trapped in this decaying, broken down shell. So the question is, okay, well, if there is a resurrection, if, if we do, you know, come back from the dead, you know, in their minds, it's like the zombie apocalypse. You know, there's this unredeemed physical body that's, that, that, that continues to be sort of an, an eternal jail cell for the spirit. Well, that's so stupid that Paul, in his frustration, just says, foolish one. Now, they translate that foolish one with an exclamation point. Um, really, the Greek is just a single word, and it just means fools! Like, Paul has just had it up to here. He's irritated at the sheer stupid, stupidity of this question. Why? Because what is the obvious answer to the problem of this unredeemed body as the the holding place for the resurrected spirit it takes no account no consideration of the power of god to do whatever he wants to do like god is somehow bound by the evilness of matter and there's just nothing he can do about it this is just the plight that we're going to have for all of eternity and Paul's like, seriously, guys, if you would just stop 
and think through this for a minute, you would see how dumb this question is. But he begins to teach it. He begins to make it clear. Look where this is going to take us. I've given you an outline here. Uh, I call the power of God will provide a resurrection body. Let's read through verse 41. Foolish one, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There's one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars, for one star differs from another star. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Paul's going to, going to, he, he wants them to say, listen, the answer to this question is right in front of your eyes. And he takes them through uh, about three different realms, if you will. He starts with plant life. In verse 37, he says, As for what you sow, you're not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or, or, or of another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. All right, think about this. doesn't matter whether you're a wheat farmer or a flower gardener. You understand you get a packet of seeds and you pour out those seeds into your hand and you look at them. There's nothing in that seed that implies what you hope to get. The seed doesn't look like the final shape of that plant in any way. This is a, this is a, a rose seed. Really it doesn't look like a rose. This is wheat seed. Really it doesn't, doesn't look like a wheat. I mean, no crop, no plant ever is seen in the seed. The seed has a body, and what do you do? You plant it in the ground, you cover it with dirt, and there is this mysterious process that occurs. That seed decays. I mean, it it opens up, but it begins to, to break down into decay. But something sprouts out of that seed, and it pokes through the dirt, and it grows up. Whether it's a stalk of corn, whether it's a, uh, uh, whether it's wheat, whether it's a, a rose bush, whatever it is, what comes up above the ground visually doesn't look any longer like the seed. Paul says, just think this through. Plant life is right in front of your eyes, a perfect example that what you bury bears no resemblance. Now it's, he, he wouldn't know these, these words, but he knows that the seed is genetically connected to the plant, but visually there's no, there's no connection. The seed not only doesn't look like the plant, but the seed dies and something else replaces it. What's the mystery of growing crops or growing flowers or growing anything? The mystery is you've planted, you've watered, you've nurtured, you've weeded, but God gives the growth. And his point is God has a body, a shape, if you will, for every plant that's not visually related to the seed that you looked at initially. So he's, in other words, he's saying, when your physical body dies, 
and you bury it in the ground, what do we know happens? It begins to decay. It breaks down. Even in the ancient world, they knew that, that at some point you just got bones and teeth and, 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 you know, that kind of stuff left. And given enough time, even that goes away. Paul says, but in the sovereign power of God, doesn't it make sense that if God can let a seed die and then he gives to the life that's in that seed a shape entirely different, doesn't it not make sense that this body could die and be buried and what comes after has an unshakable connectedness to us but it's very different in some profound ways. Well, he doesn't stop with the with the with with the plant life. He he goes to animal life. Look at verse um, thirty nine. He says, "Not all flesh is the same flesh. There's one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish." In other words, he says, "Look at creation around you." Uh, you ever watch? You ever watch? You know, like Discovery Channel documentaries or I love the National Geographic Channel. That's kind of my preferred choice of those kinds of channels. And 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 he says, listen, um, there's human flesh. There's different kinds of animals. There's fish. There's birds. Well, what's the fascinating thing about creation? The fascinating thing about creation is each one has been given their physical structure to fit the environment in which they live. Fish breathe with gills. They have scales. Their, their reproduction and, and, and digestive systems are all suited for what? Life underwater. Birds, very different. What about penguins? Wow, here's a bird suited for underwater. Wonder what made God think of that. Animals, you got the elephant, you got the lion, you got the earthworm. What's the common element? They're all perfectly suited for their environment. Because in the creative process in the mind of God, he created a suitable structure for the environment of each creature. Polar bears have incredible amounts of fat because they live in horrendously cold parts of the world. A polar bear wouldn't do well on the equator. God didn't put them on the equator. But he made each animal suitable for their environment. Paul says, okay, we've seen the comparison to plant life. The, the seed dies and something very different comes as a result because God has the power to give to each plant an appropriate body that doesn't look at anything at all like what he started with. The point he's making with animal life is God uses his power, his creative power, to make each animal perfectly suited to the environment in which he is assigned to live. So Paul's point is, if this body is suitable to live in this life, doesn't it make sense that when we step across into eternity, 
that God provides a body that's suitable for living in eternity, a body that's fitted for that environment. Now, he's going to describe that body in a little bit. But right now, he's just making the case that that this is a silly question about the resurrection body because God has this. He goes next to um, the level of, 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 of astronomy. Look at verse 40. He says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars, for one star differs from another star in splendor. Now think about this. Paul is making another illustration. He says, when you look at the earth, there is a glory to the earth. The Amazonian rainforest, the the, the, the Rocky Mountains, the, the Great Plains. I mean, whatever part of the world you're in, there's, there's incredible and extraordinary beauty there. And it's, it, it, there's a glory to the earth in all these different ways. Um, the moon, the moon is nothing at all like the earth. And yet it has a certain kind of glory to itself. The sun is not like either one of them, but the, the fire, the, 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 the power of warmth that comes from the sun, there's a whole different kind of glory to the sun stars. He says, all stars aren't the same. There are various, uh, uh, lights, uh, that flicker. Some stars are brighter. Some stars are larger. The, the stars themselves are unique. Now, Paul doesn't have the 21st century understanding of science that we have. But I think part of what he's saying here is God took the same basic building blocks of creation and he created these unique expressions from the same basic materials. Stars of different kinds of splendor, the sun, the moon, the earth. There's incredible variety within creation. Why? Because God chooses to express himself with lots of variety. What does that have to do with the resurrection body? Well, look at the three illustrations. Instead of worrying about whether we're going to be in this broken down thing forever and ever, amen. He says, look at plant life. What dies and is buried is foundationally different than the end product of what God brings as a result. Like animals, we can assume that whatever environment God intends for us to live in in eternity, he will put us in a body that is suitable for that environment. And get this, we will not all be alike. Each of our resurrection bodies will have a splendor unique to us as individual and special creations of God, just like all the stars have a distinctiveness to each one. Wow. Notice he has not answered their question. What's the resurrection body like? He hadn't told us that yet. But he has said, but he has answered the first question about, about the fact of the resurrection body. And, and he's made the case that we have physical illustrations right in front of our faces that tell us, that, that reassure us of all the basic things that we need to know about what we will be like in eternity. Okay? All right. The resurrection body is appropriate for eternity. Look at verse 42. 
he says in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, meaning like these illustrations I've just given you, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Now we'll talk about that in just a minute. But look at what he says in just these, um, this little poetic section right here. First of all, he says, he's going to tell us now, he's going to try and answer the question about what the resurrection body is like. He says, the one thing we know is that it will be incorruptible. That is, the resurrection body will not decay. One of the realities of everyday life, I don't care what age you are, we spend all of our time dealing with the decay of our own body. I mean, we eat because that puts off decay. We sleep because that postpones decay. We, we take vitamins. We exercise. We, everything we do, we go to the doctor, we take medicine. Everything we do is to offset the inevitable decay of this body. And it's not an age thing. I mean, we were just talking about going to physical therapy, right? Well, my wife teaches fourth grade and she had one kid today who got a cast off from a broken bone and another little girl came in with crutches because she broke a bone last night. Fourth grade. Who knew fourth grade was that dangerous? And yet, even fourth graders have to face the inevitable brokenness of the human body. I mean, it's just the way things are and, and, and it's what we have to deal with. But the, but the resurrection body will be incorruptible. That means it will be beyond the power of deterioration. Think, think this through. Decay, decline, deterioration, pain, aches, they will be no more. A body not subject to decay. He says it will be incorruptible. Sown in corruption, that means what was laid into the grave was broken down when it got in the grave and it will continue to break down further in the grave. But what is raised up from the grave will be incorruptible not able to be corrupted. Then he says, sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. That is, he's talking about the the resurrection body will be a sinless body. Our present bodies are dishonored because of sin. Sin is an intruder that has invaded, it occupies, and it uses our physical bodies sometimes to our own detriment. I'm going to, I'm going to actually preach Sunday morning from uh, the end of Romans chapter 7, biblical thought, biblical thinking about holiness. But, but that, not to, not to preview my, my thunder, but Paul is going to talk about this struggle with sin. I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the, the very things that I do want to do. Sin is an intruder. It is a, it is the old man that is being crucified, but he just won't die fast enough. But what we have here is a new body that will not be capable of sin in any form. Not word, not deed, not action, not attitude. We will live in eternity without 
the sad confession of failure. That's this body. Well, sown in weakness, raised in power. I think Paul is telling us that this is an unlimited body. Think about, think about this. Um, I, I, I tried to ponder this a little bit this afternoon. Do you know that in this life, there are things that I can think of that I can't do? I flew in an airplane over the peak of Mount Everest one time, 2004. It was an amazing, an amazing experience. But I'll never climb Mount Everest. I mean, don't even really want to. Because I have certain limitations that I just said, let's, let's take, let's scale it back from Mount Everest. My son-in-law is skiing this week. I love to ski, but I've given it up. It's past me now. I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm fine with where I am in life. I'm happy with, with the life that God has given me and, and I'm okay with it. But when he was packing all his equipment, I had a little twinge, you know, cause I don't get to go skiing. What Paul is describing here, sown in weakness, he, it doesn't even have to be physical stuff. Do you know that there, that there are musicians who can think of music that nobody can actually play? Do you know there are artists who can imagine a picture that they don't actually have the talent to produce? I mean, we can all come up with things in our minds that our bodies just can't pull off. But he says this body that's sown in weakness will be raised in power. That is, we will never again have some aspiration to accomplish something that we won't have the talent and the ability to be able to do. We will have an unhindered expression of creativity, of full participation in, in the glory of what God has, has, where God has placed us. He says, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Now this is the part where we have to, to really kind of, kind of break it down because, uh, it's easy to misunderstand this. There are some scholars who argue that Paul is reverting back to this whole Gnosticism problem, um, of the natural body or the physical material body versus the, the, the non-material spiritual body. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here because I think that contradicts the points of everything that he said up until now. So we don't interpret, I don't interpret this phrase as being, uh, we were, we were laid down as a physical body, but we're raised up as a spiritual body. Listen, we will not simply be spirit beings in eternity. One thing that we know is that when Jesus came back from the dead, um, we know that he, that he was able to pass through doors and enter Locked rooms, that's pretty cool. But there was some level of substance to that body. Uh, he ate fish. Uh, people were able to touch him. You know, Mary grasped him. Um, there was substance to the body. He was not an apparition. He was not a ghost. He, he had some physical expression of, of a, a corporal existence. So what Paul's talking about here is not that we're laid down physical and we're raised up a spirit being. I think what he's talking about, he's using natural man and spiritual man in terms of 
um, uh, in terms of, and, and he's going to take us, uh, I'll show you why I think this, because he's going to take us to a discussion of Adam and, and Jesus, but, but the natural man is the man associated with this life, this body that is suited for this environment. The spiritual man is the man animated physically by the Spirit of God to be able to live in the environment of, of, of the eternal life. Okay? Uh, that'll make more sense when we get, get to these next verses. He says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. All right, let me read the rest of these verses, and then we'll, we'll break it down. The first man was from the earth and made of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man made of dust, so are those who are made of dust. Like the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. Here's Paul's, here's Paul's argument. He says, we, we have a physical connection to Adam. Adam was birthed out of the dust of the earth. God fashioned him from the dust and breathed life into him. And every, and, and, and Adam as a living being had the capacity to, to bring life generation by generation by generation. We have babies. We have the capacity to, uh, to reproduce ourselves. And in every generation of human history, that's exactly what's happened. But in all of those generations of reproduction, there is this unmistakable connectedness to what went before. We look at a baby and we say, oh, he looks just like his father. Well, why is that? Because he's out of his father. He's a a natural progression of that life that moves from generation to generation. He Paul says, as we're connected all the way back to Adam by the characteristics of this physical body, so those who are in Christ Jesus will be forever connected to Jesus and share the characteristics of Jesus. He put the resurrection body on display. Our body will have an unmistakable connectedness to what Paul calls the last Adam, which is Jesus. Now, what do we know about the first Adam? Well, the first Adam came from the dust of the earth. That's why when we decay, guess what we become? We go back to the dust of the earth. Where did the last Adam come from? He came from heaven. He was supernaturally conceived. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and this this Adam came from heaven. So those who are in Christ, which is, by the way, Paul's favorite designation for a Christian, those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who are in Christ Jesus, in the same way that we have this unmistakable um, reflection of Adam in our physical bodies for believers in eternity, we will always have this unmistakable reflection of the last Adam. Those who are related to the Adam who came from the dust, we share the characteristics of going to dust. But those who are related to the last Adam who came from heaven, we will share the characteristics of being a heavenly man, heavenly woman, heavenly person. Okay. Um, 
Just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, just as we have the common characteristics of humanity, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. Okay, maybe all of this is not new to you in any way. I mean, maybe I haven't said anything tonight that that has been particularly insightful for you. But Paul, in his frustration at the fact that the Corinthians should have already known this or at least been able to figure it out, He's going back to the very basics, and he's laying this out in a very solid and clear way. But now, he's going to take us a little bit further. Look in verse 50, um, and I, I've called this the resurrection body is necessary to the gospel. Remember the first verses of chapter 15 uh, are what I called the essential gospel, and that's Paul's description of the content. And he takes the content of the gospel, and then he lists those eyewitnesses that gave credibility to, to the gospel. Well, he's going to come full circle now as we come to the end of this chapter, and he's going to come back around to the gospel because the point of the whole chapter is here's the gospel that by which you were saved unless you believed in vain. Remember those verses? And now this whole conversation about resurrection has been to, to circle back around and say, without belief in the resurrection, the gospel that you've been presented is incomplete. It, it has no credibility. Look at this, verse 50. He says, brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. Now, when Paul uses the word mystery, he doesn't mean like a whodunit. Uh, that is a, a Greek word that he regularly uses to say, I'm about to share something with you that you can't figure out in your own human mind. This requires special revelation. The Lord has given this to me. It's my job to give it to you. When he says, I'm going to reveal a mystery, he's telling us things we didn't know. Up till now, in this whole section, he's been kind of put out because he's telling you things you should have already known. You should have at least been able to figure this out. But he says, but now I'm going to take you to the next step, and I'm going to share something with you that you couldn't figure out on your own. Okay? I'm going to show you the connection of this resurrection question is not just some sort of intellectual uh, side note. It's not a, a, a historical triviality. It's critical. And, you know, and it's interesting, in the 21st century, in, in the more progressive and liberal branches of Christianity, it stuns me that so-called theologians, Bible experts, uh, John Shelby Spong was, a, was a, an Anglican uh, bishop for years, who is just flipping crazy. And his argument was, resurrection is a noble idea. And it was just meant to sort of inspire us to the hope for life. But it didn't actually happen. I mean, nobody actually comes back from the dead. It was something that the church, it was a myth that the church constructed to give us hope for the next life. Okay, Bishop, have you never read 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Because that's the very argument Paul is condemning, that he's fighting against. Look at what he tells us by, 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 by means of revelation. He says, uh, 
he's going to start talking about the second coming. Now, he never mentions the second coming by name, but he mentions the last trumpet. And the last trumpet is regularly used both uh, in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25 by Jesus, uh, as well as John talking in the book of Revelation. The last trumpet is regularly associated with uh, the return of Jesus. And so even though though Paul doesn't use that language, I think this is clearly what he's referring to. Now, why is he going to go to the second coming at this stage in, in the conversation? Uh, because he's been talking about our resurrection body. But, but the issue here is um, for the Corinthians, again, they've got this messed up thinking. And we've only got one side of the conversation, so I'm, I'm, I'm con- trying to construct in my mind this conversation a bit. But it appears that as a part of this ongoing debate about the resurrection body, there is this idea that um, the hope that we have in eternity um, probably requires that we die. I mean, what if I don't die before Jesus comes back? Do I miss out? Do I not get the resurrection body? It's the opposite problem of what we're going to see in a few weeks when I teach through uh, the books of Thessalonians. In Thessalonians, they were worried because some of their some of their church members had died, and they were afraid that they were going to miss the resurrection because they died. They expected Jesus to come back, and they were going to meet him. But these people had died. Have they forfeited their participation? Well, it's the opposite problem in Corinth. They were afraid that the ones that had died were going to be able to be resurrected. But if I have never died, how do I have the resurrection? Do I miss out? Okay. All right. Here's Paul. Let's see. Let's, let's, let's answer your question. He says, we, he says, first of all, we will not all fall asleep. In other words, Not every believer is going to die before the coming of Jesus. But we will all be changed. Death, physical death, does not advance you or hinder you from a resurrection body. If you're still alive when Jesus comes back, you'll be changed. If you've died, you will receive that resurrection body. Look what he says. We will all be changed, and I love this. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, let me just give you um, your Greek lesson for the night. Uh, that word, in a moment, is is the Greek word atomos. It's where we get our our word atom. Now, we have subatomic particles, and we have all kinds of scientific, you know, analysis. But in Paul's day, the atom was universally understood to be the smallest indivisible part of matter. They didn't know subatomic and, and all that. There was no way they could. So for them, the atom was was the, the, the tiniest building block of physical creation. Paul uses that word in in a chrono, in a, a time frame or chronological sense here. And when he says uh, when he says in a moment, he's saying in the smallest piece of time that's so small it can't be divided into a smaller piece of time. That's how fast we're going to be changed. But that didn't even satisfy him. He says in the smallest 
indivisible piece of time in a moment will be changed. But, it, but then he, he goes on, he says, no, no, it, it's more than that. This translation says, in the blink of an eye. But that's not really a good translation. It, it really should be in the twinkling of an eye. That split second, when you look at somebody and you see a recognition in their eye that's just that quick. Paul says in the smallest indivisible measure of time. No, no, in, in, in the time it takes for you to recognize a, a twinkle in an eye. That's how fast this is going to happen. We're going to be changed. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. How? Incorruptible. See, we've already talked about that. They'll be raised up with a body no longer subject to decay. And we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal must be clothed with immortality. Why? Because this body is appropriate for this environment of this life. But this body won't work in the environment of eternity. We have to have a different body to live in that world. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, when this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? This is a, this is a, a quotation from the 25th chapter of Isaiah. And it's a quotation from the 13th chapter of Hosea. He takes two prophetic statements about the last days, the resurrection from the dead, and he puts them together here. And he's, and, and I want you to see this for what it is. He is taunting death. Death is that enemy that hangs over our head. It is protect, per, uh, perpetually on the horizon. Uh, we have all kinds of legends and, and, and images. You know, we have this idea of the grim reaper. And you can't ever see his face, but he has a scythe and he comes and he harvests those who, whose life is over. He takes them to the place of the dead. And that image is unmistakable. It haunts humanity. And yet here is Paul. He throws back his chest and he just taunts the grim reaper. You think I'm afraid of you? You think there's anything you can do to me? I'm in Christ Jesus. When I lay down this corruptible body, when I put down this mortal body, when I decay into the dust, it won't matter. Because when I rise up, incorruptible, no more decay. Immortal, no more threat of death. Perfect in every way. You ain't got nothing to scare me. If you take me, you just... Usher me home that much quicker. Why do we grieve, but not as those who have no hope? We grieve for the temporary separation between our loved ones who are in Christ and those of us who are in Christ who are here. We grieve for the separation. We do not grieve for death. I don't know how many times I've preached funerals for families who said, you know, I hated the loser. I hated to let him go, but I didn't want him to stay like that. I didn't want him to stay in that hospital bed. 
I didn't want to stay in that, in that sick ward. I had to let him go. Why? Because we know that that corruptibility, that decay, that mortality, we can put it off as long as we can. We can fight to put it off. But it is not ever going away. Now, if you're not in Christ Jesus, you better pay for the best doctors. You better do whatever you can do. You ever, you notice how wealthy people who don't know Christ, you know, we, we've got all this research in, um, cryogenics. We'll cut off my head and they're going to freeze it. And someday, someday they're going to unfreeze me and they're going to reanimate my brain and they're going to download me into a computer. Listen, I've seen all the science fiction movies. I mean, I, I, I know all that stuff. There's not one vision of any science fiction movie I've ever seen better than the vision of revelation that John gives to us about what's coming for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't want to live here for the next 500 years. I don't want anybody to freeze me and try and wake me up somewhere down the line. I, I'm not interested in time travel. Now, death is not something we pursue. I mean, Martin Luther said death is the last enemy and it is not our place to move him up in line. We don't seek death. We, we fight against it. But when the fight is over, we are not defeated by that. Paul says, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? You got nothing on me. I'm not afraid of you. Bring it on. Now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't answer all of our curious questions about the resurrection body. I mean, there's still a whole list of things we'd like him to tell us about. But he's given us enough to have real confidence about what's in store for us. And that death is our last enemy. But by the resurrection of Jesus, death is already putting its defeat on display. Death is in the process of being defeated permanently because of what we've already seen in the down payment of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's interesting because... And I, I don't want to push this too far because I, I don't want to get sidetracked, but, but the cross, the death of Christ, that sacrificial death was where the transaction that paid for the sins of mankind was settled. So the cross is hugely significant. Don't ever minimize the cross and say, well, I'm just an Easter kind of Christian. Okay. The cross is vital in our theology of understanding how our sins were paid for. But I've also run into people that have said the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the the resurrection is just public relations. The resurrection is just, you know, God letting us know. No, it's not that. It's not insignificant. The resurrection is the down payment for us, the visible uh, presentation 
that everything we've been told about death is not only true, it's already in place. Death is defeated. It is an enemy that is toothless, that is powerless, that has no ultimate sting for us if we are in Christ Jesus. You see, the cross paid the penalty for sin so that redemption was possible. But Paul now takes the resurrection and ties that, brings it full circle, and says the resurrection is the confirmation of the message of the gospel by which you were saved if you didn't believe in vain. And then he finishes this chapter in the most perfect way. Verse 38. Now remember in verse 30, uh, verse 58. Remember in, in, in verse 34 where, where I, I jumped back and started. He says, come to your senses and stop sinning. Okay. Well, now he's been talking, he's completed his talk about the resurrection. And so he comes back around and here's the thing. The temptation would be to talk about the resurrection and to get so caught up in the defeat of death that we just get all heavenly minded and we're just, we just can't wait for that day. And Paul says, okay, all of that in God's time, all of that's waiting for you. Resurrection body, the, the, the elimination of decay, the, the, the defeat of death, all, all that's out there. But verse 58, because of all that, therefore, my dear brothers, do some stuff here. Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord was not in vain. In other words, the resurrection, the promise of the resurrection and the promise of the resurrection body should not produce in us a pie-in-the-sky Christianity that fails to be of any earthly good to anybody. In fact, it's just the opposite. The guarantee of eternity, the promise of a resurrection body, the, 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 the issue being settled that death cannot harm us and that what we wake up to will be perfectly suited for that life forever and ever. Amen. That promise means those issues are all settled. So right now, while you're in this body, while you're in this life, while you're living on this planet, get back to work and advance the kingdom. Share the gospel. Tell the truth. Minister to people. Make a difference in the the sphere of influence that you've been given. Paul finishes this chapter in a perfect way because he's had us up here contemplating heaven. What it's going to be like, no pain, no suffering, no aches and pains, no sin, no sadness. Man, it's, 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 it's a glorious thought to chew on. But he says, pull that out and chew on it anytime you need the encouragement. Remind yourself of it whenever you need a boost. But once you've done that, put it back where it belongs and come back to this life where you are meant to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ making a difference in the lives 
of the people that you meet. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. In fact, if we're properly heavenly minded, those are the people who do the most earthly good. And that's who we were meant to be. Man, what a great lesson. Join me next week. We will do chapter 16, and hopefully after eight months, we will finish the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, the 11th, uh, March the 11th, I don't know exactly what we'll do. March the 18th, we cancel. That's spring break, so we won't have activities that Wednesday night, March the 18th. When we come back on March the 25th, from from March the 25th through the end of our spring semester, um, I'm going to teach the books of First and Second Thessalonians. So, um, so we'll finish Corinthians chapter 16 next week, and then uh, and then a couple weeks down the road we'll we'll do First and Second Thessalonians through the end of the semester. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much. Your word is stunningly beautiful to us. And the reminder, not only of who we are in Christ, but who we will be in eternity. Lord, what a, what a powerful promise and motivation to live the life of representing Jesus as an ambassador of reconciliation in this life right now. Father, may the people who are called Evergreen be a people who have such confidence in our future hope that we live every day with a passion for those around us because we want them to have what you have granted to us. Father, accomplish that through your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 